Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Duff Differently. I'm Rabbi Utsteyer, and today we will be studying Duff 38, Lamed Chet, in the third chapter of Masechet Sukkah. The Mishnah, six lines from the top of 38 Aleph, tells us about the appropriate times during the day to wave the lulav. Someone who is on the road and has no lulav available, when he comes home he should take the lulav at his table. If he didn't wave the lulav at shacharit, he should wave it at dusk, because the entire day is kasher for waving the lulav. Rashi explains what is meant by al-shulchano, at his table. <coughs> According to Rashi, it means that someone, upon coming home, forgot all about that he had not yet waved the lulav and sat down to eat. Suddenly he remembers it. He should interrupt his meal and immediately proceed to wave the lulav. And we learn from this Mishnah that one may wave the lulav during all daylight hours which is the explanation why you'll see Chabad standing and offering the lulav to anyone looking Jewish, and a special urgency comes over the young man later the afternoon. Our Gemara has an objection. You say that he must interrupt, meaning he must interrupt his meal in order to wait. Urminhu and brings a Mishnah from Tractate Shabbat 9b that says that a person should not start certain activities, among others a meal, if it is reasonably close to the time of the Mincha prayer. But if he did start such an activity nevertheless, he does not have to interrupt. Comes Rav Safra and answers this objection. Lokasha, by saying, that was a different case. In Shabbat 9b, there was still enough time to pray Mincha even after finishing the meal. But here, in our case, night would have started and then the person would no longer be able to wave the lulav. Rava, on the other hand, thinks that Rav Safra didn't have to make that distinction because, after all, Mincha is a derabanam mitzvah and waving the lulav is the oraita. And he continues, if there is a kasha at all, it should have been the question why one has to interrupt one's meal if the Sefer says that Zman Lulav is Kol Hayom? Rav Safra rejects the statement of Rava by saying that no, the Sefer talks about a scenario where a person still has time left of daylight to perform the mitzvah, but the Rasha about a case where it is cutting too close and finishing one's meal would put you after daylight hours and hence you would no longer be able to wave the lulav. We see that both Rav Safra and Rava circle around the same concept that one scenario had enough time left and in the other not. Rav Zeira, on the other hand, has a different take on it. 
According to Rav Zera, the Mishnah talks about the same scenario, but the Rasha is the best case scenario, meaning one should interrupt immediately and wave the Rulaf, and the Sefer about one didn't interrupt. In that case, you can indeed still wave Ben Ha'abayim. But Rav Zera makes a very nice distinction. Your objection, Rava, that one Mishnah dealt with a Deoraita Mitzvah, meaning Lulav, and the other Mishnah with a Rabbanan Mitzvah, meaning Mincha, is not valid. Daikanami. This can be inferred by looking closely what our Mishnah says. Mi Baderech. Someone was traveling. It must be talking about Yom Tov Sheni or Chol Hamuet. Because on Yom Tov, as well as on Shabbat, one is not allowed to travel beyond the Trom Shabbat, something we talked about in Masechet Erovin Daf 42. As the Trom Shabbat is only about 1,000 Amod, there could not have been an issue of not having access to Lulav in time. So both Mishnayot talk about a Dirabanan enactment. <coughs> Let's now move on to the next Mishnah on 38 Aleph, which returns to Hallel but deals with the question of who is obligated to recite Hallel. The first three lines of the Mishnah are going to ruffle some feathers. Mishahaya Evet, O Isha, O Katan, Makrin Oto, One Acharehen, Mashehen Omrin, Vetavolo Meira. If a slave, a woman or a minor, recites for someone, he responds after them what they say, and let a curse be upon him. Rashi explains that it used to be the practice that the Shaliach Tzibur would recite Hallel, and just by listening to him the others would have fulfilled their obligation. But this only applies if the Shaliach Tzibur has the same level of obligation. But if a slave, a woman or a minor recite, because, Rashi says, they are not obligated to recite Hallel, listening alone would not fulfill their obligation, and the listener has to repeat word by word in order to be exempt. And he should be cursed for being so unlearned that he can't recite Hallel for himself, or, if he is learned, he should be cursed for having insulted God by letting this category of people read for him. The Tosafot, Ibu Hamadchil, Mishahaya Evedwisha, says that the mashma, the inference, the reason is that a woman is exempt from reciting Hallel on Sukkot, as well as that of Shavuot, because it is a time-bound mitzvah, mitzvah shehazman grama. Although, the Tosafot says, she is actually obligating during Pesach to the four cups that are part of the recitation of Hallel. The recitation of Hallel during Pesach is on account of the miracle that took place, of which women were part of. But here, in the case of Hallel on Sukkot, Hallel is not recited on account of a miracle. Why does Rashi say that the reason such a person being worthy of being cursed is that they are unlearned or learned? If a man is learned enough, then he wouldn't gain anything by appointing a slave, a woman or a minor to read for him. He isn't exempt from his obligation because he still needs to repeat word by word. Alternatively, if you say that the reason for being cursed is because the man never bothered to learn to read for himself, then you could say he should also be cursed if he appoints a male adult to read for him. This is exactly the question that Tosafot asked in the Dibu Hamatril Utihilumera. The Gemara introduces a writer from Berachot 20b, 
discussing the obligation of miners, women, and slaves to Bikot Hamazon. Be'emet amru, ben mevarech le'aviv, ve'evet mevarech le'rabo, ve'ishan mevarechet le'ba'ala. A son may recite grace for his father, a slave for his master, and a woman for her husband. The brighter does not say anything about an obligation for the man to repeat what was said for him, indicating that they actually share the same level of obligation. If you look in the Gemara on Brachot 20b, you'll see that there is a discussion whether Berkat HaMasona for women is the Oraita or the Rabbanan. Let me quote the brighter in Brachot. Ravina said to Rabba, Is the obligation of women to say grace after meals the Rabbanan or the Oraita? What difference does it make in practice which it is? For deciding whether they can perform the duty on behalf of others. If you say the obligation is the orator, then one who is bound by scripture can come and perform the duty on behalf of another who is bound by scripture. But if you say the obligation is only the Rabbanan, then a woman is not strictly bound to do this. And whoever is not strictly bound to do a thing cannot perform the obligation on behalf of others. Comment here. And now it quotes our writer. In truth, they say, a son may say grace on behalf of his father, and a slave may say grace on behalf of his master, and a woman may say grace on behalf of her husband. But the sages say, a curse be on the man whose wife or children have to say grace for him. If now you say that the the obligation of these others is scriptural, the orator, then there is no difficulty. One who is bound by the scripture comes and performs the duty on behalf of one who is bound by scripture. But if you say that the obligation is rabbinic, can one who is bound only rabbinically come and perform the duty on behalf of one who is bound scripturally? So far, the writer from Brachot. The commentary of Rashi and Tosafot on Brachot 20b is whether Bekat Amazon is rabbinic or deoraita. Tosafot makes a very interesting point. If you'd say it is the Rabbanan, Rashi says maybe one could make that argument because of the of the verse in Bekat Hamazon, Al Haaretz Hatover Asher Natan Lach, the country that was given to you, and only men were given a part of Eretz Israel as inheritance. Tosafot says. Well, in that case, Kohanim and Leviim too should be exempt from the Hamazon because they too didn't receive a, pant, a, a, a part of the land. Although the Gemara leaves the discussion of Halal and women, we've seen in the Tosafot that there was some disagreement among the Roshonim and also among later Achronim as to whether women are obligated to say Halal, and if yes, with or without the Beracha. At least in the case of Halal on Pesach, and, as implied by a Tosafot on Chanukah, women have indeed the same level of obligation as men. It becomes even clearer in the case of Birkat Hamazon, where no matter if you say Birkat Hamazon is the Oraid or the Rabbanan, women share indeed the same level of obligation. We'll see this discussion about the obligation of women in time-bound mitzvot come up again in other Masechtot. It shows that at no point in time was there ever a clear-cut case, and it was subject to a lot of debate among the rabbi. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.